This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Thank you, Sias. Um, prepare yourselves for the next couple of months. There will be dedication after dedication because our church has decided to multiply, not only in discipleship but physically. Um, there are many, many children being joined. It's a command from the Lord, so praise the Lord, we're being obedient. <laughs> and and it's, it's so true what Sias says is that, you know, we, we're really trying to put emphasis on community. And if you've been around in church circles, even for a little while, church or community would be a buzzword that you would hear the whole time. So today, uh, I... You know, the, the title, Jesus-Centered Community, kind of gives away uh, where we want to end up. But true community is only created when Jesus Christ is the center. When Jesus Christ is the middle point, we only find true community. And um, I'm going to read the scripture first. We're going we're gonna to just have one piece of scripture, Matthew 9, verse 9 to 13. I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to jump into it from there. So just a bit of context is uh, Jesus has preached the Sermon on the Mount. He has uh, started doing signs and wonders, miracles, proclaiming the kingdom of God and also showing how the kingdom of God is going to be coming. And there's this bit of tension that's rising between Jesus and the Pharisees and the, this Jesus movement and the Pharisees. And just earlier on in, in chapter 9, so from verse 1 to 9, Jesus heals the paralytic man who comes to him. And it's this almost like really, really tense moment when Jesus heals the paralytic man. He proclaims healing over him, but also says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees look at him and the crowd and they say, blasphemy. This guy is blaspheming because who are you to forgive sins? And Jesus is making a massive statement. So you can, you can imagine the tension between the religious leaders and Jesus. Jesus just forgiving sins. Jesus doing these mighty, wonderful works, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he's kind of starting to uh, take away from the power and the influence of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, in Israel in the, in the time. And this is where we find in verse 9, we'll take it from there. As Jesus passed on from there, as he just healed the paralytic man, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners. But when he heard it, this being Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in this piece, there's three movements. So if you're one of those people that take notes in church, you can write this down. It's three movements, the call, he calls Matthew, the conflict between the Pharisees and the disciples and the challenge that Jesus puts back at the Pharisees. So you can jot those down. Um, um, there's, there's three quotes, four quotes that I want to read us. 
kind of hinging on what Sias has been preaching, uh, or at least what, what I've received from what Sias has been preaching the last three weeks before this is really about living intentionally and urgently focused on Jesus. Yesterday, uh, not yesterday, last week, he, he hammered on the point of not, not stopping to greet people along the side. But when Jesus sends us on a mission that we don't veer left and right, we don't get distracted, but we live intentionally with intentionality. Yes, yes, it is an English word. Um, and urgency. And that we focus on Jesus. And someone who did this extremely well was Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And if you've never heard of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, go do some research. An amazing German theologian who actually decided during the Nazi regime to move back to Germany so that he can have an influence on the German church. So I don't know if you know this, but Nazism, that whole Aryan race trying to make the superior race, it was backed by the Bible. They twisted the words of the Bible to say that this is what the Bible says, that we must weed out all the weak people, which are paralytic people, people with deformities, people that are just that don't have blue eyes and, and blonde hair, and then ultimately Jews. And they actually said that Jesus wasn't a Jew at all. And in the midst of this, Diedrich Bonhoeffer moves back to Germany to say, no, 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 I have a responsibility as a German citizen to proclaim the truth of what the word says, not this nonsense that the Nazi regime is proclaiming. And he wrote two amazing books, The Life Together and The Cost of Discipleship, and many, many other things. Um, he died as a martyr at the age of 39 because of his faith. Uh, I think those quotes on, will be on the screen. Uh, it says, he says, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. Christianity means that we do community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. So he's saying at the cross, the cross is the center of Christianity. Therefore, the cross is the center of community. To build on that, out of one of his dissertations, he says, the church is always community. Church isn't just an event. Church isn't just somewhere where we preach or where we come to pray, but church is always community community. This that we do here, this is community. Small group, which is an extension of church, is community. Our fellowship, our prayer, everything is community. To build on that, he says the church is the church only when it exists for others. So if the church is always community, then the community exists for others. True community exists for others. So when we gather here, we're not just here to receive, but we're here to serve one another. We're here as a, as a church body, Shofar Stellenbosch, not only to receive on a Sunday and, and minister to one another, but actually to serve this town of ours. And it's amazing, see, I said it last week, how we've been able to serve this town financially and with food parcels and with prayer and with outreach during this year. It's just been amazing to see how we've put our hands together, put our hands to the plow and not look back. Then the last quote that I want to read to us from, from Diedrich Bonhoeffer that, is, that challenged me and, and, and my way of thinking. He says, the church is the real thing when it is not consumed with the assertion of power in culture, but is driven by service to others. So not trying to only influence culture and have power over the, so the community around us, but church is really church when we start serving others. 
only found this out when I was preparing for the, for the sermon, but there was another guy who lived in the same time period, the 1930s, between the 1930s and the 1940s. Both of them, Dedrick Bonifer and Paul Heber, did their, did their theological work. Paul Heber grew up, he's an American citizen, but he grew up in India. His parents were missionaries in India. Grew up there, went to school there, um, was immersed in Indian culture, but also American culture because of his parents. And when he was old enough to go to college, he went back to America to go to college. And a very clever guy, studied ma mathematics, physics, and anthropology, and wrote a lot around it. But something that he noticed when he went back to America was that a lot of missionary work was centered around American culture and way of doing life over the gospel or Jesus as the center. So there would be a, a, a gospel being preached, the gospel being taught, and a, and, a, and a call to respond to this gospel. But in responding to the gospel, he saw with the missionary work that they did that um, or that his parents had done, and that he was involved in, that there was more of a focus that people should leave the clothes that they used to wear and start wearing Western clothes, that they should stop singing the types of songs that they sang and start singing Western songs. And, and all of a sudden, this gospel presentation and this response to the gospel became more of a response to American culture. And he started thinking about how do we define, how do we then define Christian community. And to define Christian community, we can look at how we define the person, because community is made up of a lot of people. And to define the person, we ask two questions. How do I relate to God? How do I, how, who is God to me? How does he interact with this world that is around me, first of all? And second of all, how do I relate to the people around me? So how do I relate to God, and how do I relate to people? This tells me who I am as a person. And there's two ways of answering this question to how do I define Christian community? This is what Paul Heber says. So we're going to get a little bit mathematical now. Don't worry, there's no numbers, just theory. But just stay with me for five minutes. Five minutes, I promise. And, and it'll all make sense in a moment. So can I get a thumbs up from everybody just to make sure you're with me? Okay. So He's, he said you can define Christian community in two ways, using mathematics. I don't understand it completely. I understand the analogy. I don't understand the maths. Um, but he says the first definition that you can define a group of whatever, be it numbers or people or objects, you can define them by a bound set. If you can throw that, that picture up. It's a bound set. And what a bound set is, it's the same set of character traits that make them the same in the, way that, in the way and belong in that set. So basically what it says is all the things that are the same and to make this relatable, it's something like the family reunion, right? There's no doubt about who is invited to the family reunion. It's family. And who is family? Family is blood relatives, adopted children, and uh, people that are married into the family. So in-laws, you're in the family, don't worry. Um, that's how we identify family. 
This has nothing to do with the other people. It, it doesn't make you better or worse. It just says you're in or you're out. If an invitation comes and it's time for family reunion, then your next door neighbor is not going to be invited unless they're family. And like, we're not talking about you know, your second uncle's cousin's friend that is seen as family. We're talking about who is actually family. And you love your, your neighbor. You might actually get along with your neighbor better than what you get on with your family, but they're still not invited to the family reunion. And this is what a bound set is. It's a static, a, a bunch of static character traits. It's nothing that you can do about it. You are family or you're not. So you're either in or you're either out. And, and, and we see in the gospel that there, there are certain criteria that say you are a Christian or you're not. Bearing fruit of repentance, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. These are signs that you are a Christian. Unrepentant sin, living constantly in idolatry. These are things that say that maybe you are not a Christian, you're outside. And so I'm going to be a little bit abstract now, so don't hear what I'm not saying. Take it a little bit further. But for us in South Africa, we, we tend to be very religious. So this definition for us is very easy. We like to have a definite who's in and who's out. And in, a, in general, not talking about our church specifically, but the church in South Africa, what I grew up experiencing, so this is my subjective experience is that you are a Christian if you don't drink, smoke, or swear. And you might not confess this out loud to people, but I, I think there's many of us here that would be able to say, yeah, kind of that, that, you know, you're a good Christian if you don't drink, smoke, or swear. But is this really what defines us as being Christian? Because if we look at... Uh, European communities. There are communities that, like we go and drink coffee after the service, or we just gather, or we drink a milkshake on a hot day, or whatever you do to gather after a service. There's communities in Europe that, after church, they go for a beer at the beer house, like in Germany, because it's part of their culture. There's nothing wrong with that. So this is what I mean. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not promoting us to go and drink and smoke and swear I'm not going promoting for us to, to live a certain way. All I'm trying to say is, where do we, where do we really place the boundaries? Because I, I get the sense that we thicken the boundary lines to our comfort with things that are not necessarily biblical. Things that are man-made traditions. And this is what Paul Heber saw. He saw that a lot of the things that, entire, that, 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 that Christian community consists of were there, but there's a whole bunch of different stuff. All of a sudden, asking Indian Hindu people to not wear their traditional clothing anymore, but to start dressing as Westerners, to sing Hillsong and not sing Hindi songs, things like this is the things that he saw. And all of a sudden, the, this boundary line gets thickened by man-made traditions. And we add to the thickness of this boundary. The second definition that Paul Heber uh, said that we can define Christian community by is a centered set. You can throw that up. It looks a little bit more messy, doesn't it? 
a little bit disorganized maybe. But the key to a centered set is that there is a clear center. And if we ask the question then, how do I know that I am a follower of Jesus? It's not about my static attributes. It's not about whether I'm in or whether I'm out, but it's more about my movement. Am I moving towards Jesus, which is the center? Or am I moving away from Jesus? And for me, yeah, this is, this is very a, a challenging definition of Christian community because I'm a very box, OCD type of person. I enjoy everything in straight lines and square boxes. And to say that, no, 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 it's, it's not about knowing exactly who's in, who's out and setting the boundary, but more about our movement to or away from Jesus. Because I realized this as I was reading about what Paul Heber was writing and defining Christian community. I realized for so much of my life, I thought that, you know, just going to church, reading my Bible, doing these things religiously, but not having a passion for Jesus, not really loving Jesus, not really getting to know Jesus, I probably was moving away from him in my heart more than what I was moving towards him. Where on the other side of the spectrum, there's someone who's not maybe in church. They have just, in, they've just heard the gospel presentation, gospel uh, preached to them or, or, or presented to them. And there's something that's rung true in their heart and they're aware of their sinful nature. And they're on a journey to discovering who Jesus is. But they're actually really passionate about discovering Jesus and they're moving closer and closer and closer to him. And we ask ourselves the question, who is then part of the community? Let's take it away, maybe from spirituality. Let me ask you a question. How many of us play a musical instrument? Put your hands up. Okay. Well, not many. <laughs> who of you define yourselves as musicians? Far fewer hands. Why? What, what, what makes you a musician? Do you have to earn money from it? Do you have to play a certain amount of hours? Do you have to play gigs uh, week in, week out? No, no, no. What makes you a musician? I mean, I feel sorry for my house, housemates in first year when I started learning to play guitar because no one wanted to listen to me play guitar but I, I was definitely a musician because I was passionately practicing my chords, which were very off and out of beat. But I would, I would be classified as a musician because I had a passion to learn. My center point was becoming a guitarist, becoming a musician, and I was moving towards it. Maybe you have someone who is, was a professional musician. They played gigs week in, week out. They did it for a living, but they've put down their guitar and they don't play guitar anymore. They haven't played for a couple of years. They've, been, they've started moving away from what it means to be a musician. And for me, this is a more accurate description of what the Christian community is with the cross as the center and us moving towards Jesus with passion and conviction. But it's messy. It's messy. We have to let go of our boxes. We have to let go of our structure sometimes. We have to let go of our control. 
if we want to partake in Christian community. I want to get back to the scripture and see if we can bring this all together. Firstly, the call. Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Matthew was a Jewish man who, in a sense, well, not in a sense, he definitely betrayed the nation of Israel. And in the eyes of the Pharisees and any good Jew, he would have been like the furthest point from anything that is good and right with the world. He would, in fact, be the epitome of what is wrong and what is evil in this world because he has betrayed his God and he has betrayed his people to serve a Roman Empire who is squeezing the life and the resources out of the Jewish people. And just to give you a bit of context, I wish I should have actually brought, put a, a, a picture on the screen, but I forgot. Sorry about that. Forgive me. Um, but the coins that they used to use would have an imprint on with a Roman soldier or actually the, the Caesar with his foot on the throat of a Jewish man. And this was the tax that he was collecting. This was the tax that Matthew, the Jewish boy, the Jewish-born man, was collecting. And Jesus calls him to thicken the plot, to stir the story a bit more. I want to just quickly jump to Matthew 10, where Jesus called, where he names the 12 apostles. It says, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And in all of those names, the bold isn't so bold on the screen, but there's three guys that he gives a description to. Matthew, the tax collector, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Simon, a zealot, was someone who was ready to go to war for the kingdom of God. The Roman Empire must fall, and I will draw my sword and kill anybody that comes against the kingdom of God. And Simon, taking the zeal, follows Jesus. And imagine, just imagine this, just put yourself in the shoes of Simon the Zealot. Everything is great. Jesus is doing wonders, miracles, preaching. You're part of the disciples and you're walking with, and all of a sudden Jesus walks over to Matthew the tax collector. And he says, follow me. This guy that you, with everything inside of you, you want to kill him. Because he is everything that is evil and wrong with the world. He's betrayed you. Imagine the conflict and the tension in the group. Jesus does this with a purpose. And this gives us, this kind of puts us in a corner because we have no excuse to not get along with any of our brothers or sisters in Christ. If these two guys who were at opposite ends of the spectrum came together and Matthew actually writes the gospel according to Matthew, so praise the Lord, Simon didn't kill him. But somewhere along the line, we see that they, that they got along. And they maybe weren't best friends, but they lived together and they ministered together. They did community together. 
The scary one is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. The one who seemed to be on the inside from everybody that weren't part of the, that weren't the disciples. He seemed to be on the inside. He seemed to be right with Jesus. Seemed to be part of the ministry group, the chosen few. But in his heart, maybe never was really on the inside. Maybe really never loved Jesus. I can't necessarily say that, but at the end of his life, we know that he betrayed Jesus. He walked away. We move on from verse 9 to verse 10 to the conflict. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So, so the, the Pharisees see that Jesus is sitting and he's actually going to have a meal as a rabbi. So Jesus was seen as a rabbi. And rabbis don't associate with anybody that is a sinner or a tax collector, a prostitute, no one who is in sin like that because we're above that. And the Pharisees come not to Jesus but to his disciples and they ask them, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Is, is your teacher really a teacher? Is your teacher really as great as what you think? Because, I mean, look who, look who he's eating with. And remember, they're already very offended by him. They've already cried out blasphemy. So they, you know, they're trying everything to, to stop this movement, this community of Jesus that is growing. And Jesus steps in, in verse 12, and he says, But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. And not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous. But sinners. Jesus is making a very deliberate statement. About who is in and who is out. And he's redefining it. Who is in and who is out in the church. This is what I believe God is saying to us today. Is that we need to allow Christ to be the center we need to allow Christ to redefine our minds and our hearts to who is part of the community of faith and who is not. Because what the Pharisees were trying to do is they were trying to be as exclusive as they could to try and keep their holy huddle and say that, that if you do this and this and this and this, then you'll be saved, then you'll have eternal life, then you'll be right with God. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Come to me and I will make you. And out of you will flow this and this and this and this. It's a distinct difference in the approach. Jesus makes himself the center. And he, and he, and he calls people towards himself. But Jesus doesn't just stand and wait for people to come. He moves towards us with mercy and with compassion. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. See, the Pharisees would have, would have, would have said, Matthew can come anytime. We would have accepted him anytime if he would just repent, if he would just uh, 
you know, let go of his lifestyle, if he would walk away from serving the Roman Empire, if he would do this whole list of things, then we'd accept him. But Jesus does the opposite. Jesus says, now I meet you where you're at. Only at the cross do we find the grace and the mercy of Jesus. With a cross at the center, we find true community. Where the self is dead, but Christ is alive in you. Therefore, serving and humility and love flow from your life. If we really want to get true community, Jesus must be in the center of our lives. We must move towards him. No side shows. As C.R. said last week, that Jesus is, is the goal. We don't look to the, to the left or to the right. We're not getting distracted by the things of this world. But Jesus is the center. There's intention and urgency in the way that we live our lives towards Jesus. And what that means is that the self is dead. No more selfishness. No more putting boundaries around my life because it's so easy to do that. So easy for me to, to put cultural boundaries in my life to say, no, no, I'm safe. I'm fine. As long as I just read my Bible and I just do the religious things, then, then I'm going to be fine. Jesus wants us to give everything. He wants us to let go of the self and come to him that his grace and his mercy have effect. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.